you can get plugged in and serve. When was the last time you tried to put on something and it was a little bit too small? Um, was that recently? For me it was. I tried on some clothes that uh, you know someone gave me and I, I put on a pair of pants that they looked like they were my size. They were the right size, but when I put them on, my family looked at me and said, they're a little too tight for you, John. You know, They're really not going to work. It's like, why not? And then I realized it's hard to sit down and bend over in those things, you know? Uh, I wasn't quite sure what they were referring to, but uh, if you've ever been on the journey of trying to lose weight or gain weight and you've tried to put something that just doesn't fit, it's a little too small, not the right size, we've all had those experiences. Maybe you went into your boss and you were expecting a raise or a bonus and, and, and you didn't get what you were expecting. It was a little smaller than you thought and this is what your emoji would have been. Um, a few weeks ago, we were, our family was on a, a cruise, and um, we ate at restaurants that are a little nicer than what we normally eat at. And as they brought out the appetizer, my son, who's a pretty big guy, and he's 19 year old, he, 19 year old, he looked at the appetizer, he's like, is that it? You know, and, and proceeded to eat the thing in one bite, you know, swallowed it whole practically, you know, whatever it was on the, on the plate. And so we have these kinds of experiences where we expect something to be better or bigger than it was, and it's small, and it leaves us feeling disappointed. But I want to ask you this question. Have you ever faced that experience with God? Where you were expecting it to be bigger or better and it didn't come through. It was a little small, it was a little tight. It wasn't what you thought it was going to be. You thought God was going to show up and save the day, solve the problem, show up in an amazing way. And He really didn't. He really didn't. And as I thought about this, I thought sometimes I think when that happens, God becomes a little smaller in our eyes and in our mind. Where do we develop our image of God, our picture of God? Well, I think you've heard me talk about this often, that our picture, our image of God as our heavenly Father comes from our experience with our earthly fathers. Our experience with our earthly fathers. How did you experience your earthly father, especially in your growing up years? Was he present? Was he involved? Was he distant? Was he removed? Was he always working and then too busy? Did he leave and abandon you? Was he just kind of there but never engaged? And the painful reality is as we develop a perception, our impressions of God through the relationship that we have with that earthly father. Now, can that change? Absolutely. Can it change with our earthly father? Hopefully, by God's grace, it has. Can it change with our heavenly father? It can. But we have to face where those things come from and why those things are significant. Do you remember the first time that God showed up in your life in a big way? you remember when that was? Um, I remember when it was for me. I was in college and had grown up with a foster sister in our home and there had been some problems and the relationship had gotten fractured and our family had lost touch with her. But I was the oldest of the other five kids that were biological and she was... So I... It's like a big sister, someone to take a little bit of the heat off me from time to time. But I remember praying that God would restore that relationship. And I remember when God did in a way that I had nothing to do with. I was like, wow, God, you did that? That was a big thing. And I thought, God can do big things. And what that set in motion for me is that I began to realize that what I wanted was I wanted a God bigger than myself. And I hope you want a God bigger than yourself. And not just a God that of your own making. It's a God of your own making. Yeah, today we're going to look at a story of a guy who created his own little 
idea of God. And next week we're going to see what happened um, as he tried to have that God work his life out. But this morning we're going to look at how it all got created. We're in this series, you heard Mike say, entitled Never Forget, the sequel. And it's about the book of Judges. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Judges uh, chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Judges 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in your seats right in front of you. It's page 205. Or if you can uh, open up an app on your phone, uh, the Bible app or another app, and follow along there as well. So the book of Judges was written between, the events happened between the year 1300 and 1000 B.C. And they're describing the events in the land of Israel. The Israelites had moved in this land. They'd occupied the land. And there were other nations living there at that time. And God said, I want you to drive them out because this is your land. The land that I promised to you as my people. Well, they didn't drive them all out. And over time, they began to explore and engage in the various religions and ways of life. And this resulted in a lot of suffering. And as they suffered, they called out to God for help. And God showed up and God answered their plea for help. And God would send a deliverer a man or a woman who would rescue them, a judge, and then they would bring some justice to the land, to the people who were there. But invariably, they would drift away, fall away, and they would experience some relief, but then they would stop worshiping God and get drawn back in the cycle would happen over and over again. The stories in the book of Judges that we've looked at so far are not about life in Israel. They're not about what the average Jew was facing during that time. They're about these people that seemed a little bit like superheroes, they were the deliverers, the rescuers, if you would. There was Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah. In the last four weeks, we've been looking at this crazy guy, Samson. Um, but the rest of the book, 17 through 21, that we're going to be in for the next five weeks, this is what life was like in the land of Israel. On each one of the major networks, at the end of the nightly news at 6.30, they have a segment, and they all, they all describe it a little bit differently. Basically, they're saying, this is what the average life is like in America and someone who does something significant. They want to give you a taste of what American life is like. Not all the headline news that's all bad. They want to close with something that feels good. And so they tell you what life in America is. It, life in America is like. And that's really what Judges 17 through 21 is all about. There's no, there's no heroes in Judges 17 through 21, but it's this is what life was like in the land of Israel. During this time, we're going to focus on two tribes, the, the, the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Benjamin. And the first half is in the tribe of Dan, Judges 17 and 18. And then the second half is going to be Judges 19 through 21, the tribe of Benjamin. And both of these tribes were right in the middle of the land of Israel. And I think that's significant because this wasn't a problem that was an outlier. It wasn't a problem that was on the fringe, way over here, way over here. It was right in the heart of the land of Israel. And I think it represented what was going on in the hearts and the lives of the people of Israel. It points to the fact that it's not an isolated problem. The, the nation of Dan, they didn't have a home. All the other nations, when they crossed the Jordan River, they took this land and they basically carved it all up. And God said, okay, you have this part, you have this part, you have this part, you have this part. Now you go with your tribe and you need to force out the nations that are worshiping other gods and you need to occupy this land. And the tribe of Dan never did that. The Ammonites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down in the plain they also held on to Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim. So they could not move them out. So they lived in the hills is where they lived. But this section is highlighted by two phrases. The first phrase is this, in those days Israel had no king. And that seems kind of odd because they had never had a king. 
So why would they even be talking about a king? But everybody else had a king. Everybody else had a king. This begins at the end of, begin, this shows up at the beginning of each one of the next couple chapters and closes the final section and highlights the way the people were functioning. You see, God's design with his people is that he would be their king, a theocracy. Not a monarchy, but a theocracy. There was just one problem with this approach, and that's the second phrase that shows up over and over again. Everyone did as they saw fit, or everyone did what seemed right to them. Sadly, the nation recognized no one is their king, not even God, and slowly they were becoming more and more absorbed by the Canaanites. And we're going to see, first of all, that their religious culture was being absorbed by the Canaanites, and then we're going to see that their moral culture at the end of the book was being absorbed by the Canaanites. And they eventually created a God, and what we're going to come to discover is that when you make your own God, he's too small to be a God to make a difference. A God of your own making is too small to be a God to make a difference. If you're there in your Bibles in Mike and Judges chapter 17 verse 1 it says there's a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. So we meet this guy Micah. We don't meet any individuals all throughout the book except the the heroes, the judges, and now we meet this guy Micah. So this kind of everyday life in the land of Israel. And it's interesting that he chooses a guy named Micah because the word Micah means who is like our God? Now, what do you think should be the answer to a religious Jew of who is like our God? What should be the answer to that? No one. No one. And so the answer is quite obvious. And the name in that culture reflected the character of the person. And so if this person named Micah had a name that was who is like our God, and there's no one else like it, you would assume that this would be a person with some strong faith. So what happened with Micah? Well, in verse 2, it tells us, He said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I had that silver. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. Now let's unpack this story a little bit. So what happened? Was well, mom had 1,100 shekels of silver. And if you were here with us last week, we talked a little bit about the, the, the amount of that. That's the exact same number from last week. If you were here, remember that. Um, Ten shekels of silver was the annual income. So 1100 that's like a massive amount of money. That's like a lifetime of savings. So her whole life savings disappears. It disappears. And what does she do when it disappears? Does she pray and ask God for help to survive, to live, to find a solution? That's not what she does. She calls down a curse. On that person. A curse was something that was superstitious. You know, something that was magical almost, you know. Um, and it seems kind of odd when you name your kid Micah, who would, you would assume would have a strong faith, that you would be calling down a curse when your money disappears. So Micah hears about the curse. Somehow he hears it through the walls. Must have been kind of thin there, you know. He hears about the curse. He hears it through a neighbor. He hears it somehow he's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be in duck soup. I better go fess up to mom. Does he come and fess up to mom because he's an honest guy? What do you think? Yes or no? No. No. He's just afraid of the curse, right? That's all he's afraid of. Does he come and fess up because he's a man of character and he realized I did something wrong? And I... No. No. He's just afraid of the curse. That's all he's afraid of. 
And so he comes to his mom and he says, by the way, mom, that money you've been worried about, that you called down the curse on, uh, I took it. I took it. And look what his mom says. The Lord bless you. Now, if I asked a half a dozen moms in this room, if your kid stole your whole life savings and then came and confessed it to you, I think you might say something to him more like, what were you thinking? Clearly you were not thinking. If you ever do anything like this again, I'm going to throw your butt in jail for as long as it needs to be. You know, and don't even come expecting any, comp- any compassion from me. But the Lord bless you. That seems pretty odd. It seems pretty odd. Call down a curse versus asking God to help and then bless the thief. And this was what life was like in the land of Israel during the time of the judges. And we're just getting started. She then takes the money after he brought it back to her there in verse 3 and she says, I dedicate this, consecrate this or dedicate my silver to the Lord. So she said, God brought this back to me. I'm going to dedicate this to the Lord. Now, normally in the culture of that day, in the Jewish culture, you see this a little bit later in the story of Samuel, when something is dedicated to the Lord, it's given to the priest or given to the temple, given as a way for God to use it. But what does she do? What does she do? I'm giving this back to God for my son to do what? Make me an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So I'm going to give it back to you, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it to make myself an idol. And that's exactly what she did. After he returned the silver, she took only 200, not the whole thing that she had promised to consecrate to the Lord, and gave it to the silversmith to use it to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. So now they've got their own little idol. That's what Micah has in his house. And again, remember, this is what life was like in the land of Israel during the time of the judges. Um, And so Micah decides, well, that's not quite religious enough. And so he goes and he made a shrine, made a place of worship. And then he made an ephod, which an ephod was the clothes of the priest. And then what he did is he installed one of his sons as his own priest. And so what has Micah done at this point? Before I tell you what he's done, let me read you something from Deuteronomy, which is a few books before the book of Judges. This is the instruction that God gave to the people of Israel when they came into the land of Israel. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, referring to the other nations. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name. To that place you must go there to offer your offerings. You are not to do as we, are, as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. That sounds familiar. Be careful not to sacrifice your offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. So God said very clearly, um, no other idols. Ten commandments, right? No other idols, only one God to worship. God said very clearly, you worship in the place that God says for you to worship. God says, don't do everything the way you want it to be done. 
But that's not the way life was like. That's not what life was like in the land of Israel. And so what has Micah done at this point in time? Micah has acted out of fear toward his mother, took her money and created idols, made his own place of worship, put his son in a role of as a priest, and he created a God that was his size just for him. And the author points out the reality in the next verse. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. God was supposed to be their king, but they're functioning as if they do not have a king. The inmates are running the asylum. The kids are running the house. You say, well, John, would having a king solve their problems? Well, if you read the book of Samuel and you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, you discover having a king wouldn't solve their problems because most of those kings took their hearts away from God as well. The issue was who is like God? Who is like God? And all these actions are typical of the people of that day because life in the land was what life in the land of Israel was like. Well, the story took another turn in the next few verses because there was a young man who happened to wander in, and he was a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of, of Judah. You say, what's a Levite? What's a Levite? Well, there were 12 sons of Jacob. One of those sons was Levi. And the tribe of Levi were designated as the priest. And so when they came into the land and they divided the land all up and everybody had their little portions, the tribe of Levi, they didn't get a portion. They didn't get a space. Because what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to go to the place of worship that God had set up and they were to serve the people. That was their job. Once you became 30 years old as a Levite, you serve God till you're 50 and that's how the priest was set up in the land of Israel. And so that's what this guy was. He was a Levite. He was from the priestly tribe. And he was a young guy and he was wandering around and he was moving on. We don't really know why. We don't know a lot of details. Um, but he shows up in this town, in search of some other place to stay. So that's really, he was nomadish. And on his way, guess where he shows up at? Surprise. Micah's house. Micah's house. Now, when you meet someone for the first time, and you introduce yourself to them, what's one of the first questions you might say to them? Hi, I'm so-and-so. You might then say to them, what is your what? Name, right? That's how you would introduce yourselves to one another. It's kind of odd, but Micah says, where are you from? Where are you from? And then notice how the Levite, notice how this guy responds. He's like, I'm a Levite. So you come and introduce yourself to me. You say, where are you from? And I say, I'm a pastor. You know, it's a little odd, isn't it? He kind of puts that out there right in the front that, you know, this is what his role is. This is who he is. This is what he does. It's just very odd. And he said, by the way, I'm looking for a place to stay. Immediately, Micah's brain starts churning and the wheel's starting to churn. He's, he's made an idol. He's made a shrine. He's made the clothes. He's put one of his sons. The only thing he needs to make this thing legit is a real, true-blooded Levite. And then it would be authentic. Then it would be the real deal. And so what does Levi say to, what does Micah say to him? He says, live with me, be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. And so what did he offer to him? He offered him a job. He said, come, be my priest. He offered him identity. He said, be my father. That's a very odd statement to say. Why would he put that title of authority on, it says in the earlier part of the text, a young man. 
I'll give you money, food, and clothes. What else could he need? It was too good of an offer to pass down. And so he said, I'll take it. I'll sign on a dotted line. And instead of being a father, he became like one of his sons to him. And you say, what is this story about? What is this story about? It's just odd. It's just strange. But notice how he closes this section. He installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived there in his house. Um, before I go any further, let me read you another verse. Um, because the Levite's job was to tell the people of Israel how to worship God. To tell the people of Israel, you're not honoring God, you're walking in your own ways, this is what God says you should do. It says in Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, If your own brother or son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend entices you, saying, let's go and worship other gods, gods of the people around you, do not yield or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. He says, actually, put them to death because they're trying to turn your heart away from the one true God. This Levite doesn't do that. But notice how Micah closes this part of the story. He says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. He makes an idol. He makes clothing. He makes his priest, his son the priest. Then he finds a priest and designates him to be his own personal priest when God says, don't have any place of worship other than the ones I designate and the Levites are supposed to instruct you, not you hire them. And then he says, now God, will you bless me? Will you bless me? Um, they chose to do what was right in their own eyes and then they asked God to bless them. That's what this story is about. They chose to do what was right in their own eyes and they said, God, will you bless me? Will you bless me? I mean, this is the guy who takes a huge pay increase at his job that's going to have him traveling and away from his family. And while he's away from his family and not raising his kids and invested in their lives, he says, God, take care of my family and keep them safe and healthy. It's like the guy and the girl are sleeping together and they, and they, they thank God that for bringing them someone to make them so happy. It's like the young woman who gets pregnant and thanks God for the baby and asks friends to pray that the baby will be okay. Is there anything wrong with those prayers? No, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But they've chosen to do what was right in their own eyes and then ask God to bless them. And they've made a God of their own size. They've totally lost sight of the fact that of who God is. And they've made a God of their own size. That's what, that's what Micah did. He made his own little place of worship, his own little priest, his own little place where he could be involved in a relationship. And instead of being told by the Levite, this is not what you should be doing, this is not the way you should be living, he thought he hit the jackpot. He said, life could not be any better than it is today. But that's what life was like in the land of Israel. As I thought about this, I, asked myself, I found myself asking the question, how do we create a God of our own making? How do we do that? 
How do we create a God of our own making? You're, you're, you're like, well, John, I, don't, I, don't ma- I didn't make a little idol. They do that in India. I don't do that here. I come here. But how do we take God and make Him too small so it fits the way we live life? I think one of the ways we do that is we determine what's right and wrong. We determine what's right and wrong. Um, when you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith, God says don't marry someone. Well, you know where dating leads to? It leads to marriage. So if you're dating someone in a relationship who doesn't share your faith, you're going to end up in a place that you don't want to be. And you're determining what's right and wrong. God's pretty clear. He says don't lie, but you shade the truth. You don't say things that need to be said. You're determining what's right and what's wrong. God says don't steal but you fudge your time card at work. You're like, ah, everybody does it. You're determining what's right and what's wrong. You see what we're doing? Instead of turning to God to determine what's right and wrong, we're creating our own God, our own place of worship, our own way of relating to God, and we're making God our size. There's another one. We create rules about life, and then we connect them to God. You say, what do you mean by that, John? You create rules about life, and then we connect them to God. Now here's one, a rule of life that I hear a lot. God just wants me to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. I just want my kids to be successful. That's a rule we create about life. And then we say, that's what God wants. That's not what God wants. God wants you to follow Him. God wants you to be holy. That's what God wants. You say, John, don't holiness and happiness go hand in hand? Eh, occasionally. Occasionally. And when it happens, it's icing on the cake and you say, thank you, Jesus, because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. You see how we make these rules about life? And they're not God's rules. They're not God's way of living. You know, what does God say He wants for our kids? God says He wants young men and young women who have a heart that follows after God. That love Him and that love people. And that's what matters to them, not the almighty dollar. But when we say, what do I want for my kids? I want them to be successful. I want them to get a great job and a great career. Are those bad things? Those are not bad things. And then we connect it to God and we make that our prayer. We've created our own religion. And we shrunk God down to our size. Here's another one. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. God protect us from all the bad stuff. God never says He's going to protect us from bad stuff. God says, I'm going to be with you. No matter what, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, and I will never abandon you. We live in a broken, messed up world because of sin, and we are exposed this day in and day out. And God never says He would do those things, but He says He'll be with us no matter what comes our way. There's another one. How about expecting things of God that He never promised? 
expecting things of God that he never promised. God, will you heal me? Will you heal me? Say, John, shouldn't I pray for healing? Absolutely. I think there's something bigger that you should pray for, and that's you should pray that you can accept God's will for your life, whether you're healed or whether you're not, and that you can give glory to God whether he heals you or whether he doesn't. Because if all you're praying about is, is your healing, then you've shrunk God down to make him your size, to fit your wants and your desires. How about that God's not going to give you more than you can handle? God never said that. There are some people that I know and love who have way more than they can handle right now. God says He's not going to give you a temptation greater than you can handle. Not He's not going to give you more in this life than you can handle. Sometimes He does. How about this? We blame God for things not His fault. Health crisis. Accidents, people that we love failing us, pain, tragedy, loss, abuse. God, how could you? God, why didn't you? We bring God down to our size. And I think that the story of this Levite, as it describes for us, excuse me, of Micah and this Levite, as it describes what life was like in the land of Israel in that day, they were made God their size. He could fit in their own home, a little shrine out the back door. And when we do these things, we create a God of our own size. I don't know about you, but I need a God that's much bigger than I am. I do. I do. Uh, I need a God bigger than me when life doesn't make sense. That I can trust that there's someone in control of all this craziness. I need a God bigger than me when my pain won't go away. That's going to somehow be with me in the middle of the night. I need a God bigger than me when my struggle doesn't end. I need a God bigger than me when my marriage is on the rocks. I need a God bigger than me when I've been betrayed and trust has been broken. And there's someone I can turn to who's my rock. I need a God bigger than me when my health is uncertain, when my family is fractured, when my job is sucking the life out of me. I need a God bigger than me. I don't want a God I have made because a God I have made is too small to make a difference in my life. It's too small to make a difference in my life. Say, John, how do I have a God who's bigger than me and not a God of my own making? How? How? I'm going to give you a couple suggestions to walk away with and think about this morning. The first is you've got to engage in God's truth. Micah completely disregarded the truth that God had given to Moses, that he gave to Joshua, that he passed on to them. Just one generation removed. It was disregarded. Say, John, how do I know if my prayers, if the things I'm thinking about, the things I'm talking about, are things of God or things of my own making? You've got to look into God's truth. You've got to come here and hear it. You've got to be in a group that's engaging you with it. You've got to open it up and say, God, help me to know what you want me to say, how you want me to live. 
If you and I try to figure out life on this, uh, life in this world, we saw a few weeks ago what life is like when we're controlled by our emotions. We'll be swept away by the culture. We need something that will guide us. And this is the only hope I've got. The second thing I would encourage you to do is don't try to figure life out on your own. You know, in this story of Micah, one of the things that strikes me, there's nobody else involved. The dude does all this stuff by himself. All by himself. Figuring it all out. Making this crazy little shrine, his little priestly garments, putting his son in that role, bringing it on and hiring a priest. All on his own. All on his own. And I'd connect that, you know, one of the things that happens with our brain is things get distorted in our brains. And things get distorted in our brain and, and a distortion can quickly become a truth in our brains. Our brains have the capacity to do that. But a couple things that are true that happens, fear distorts what we think. And so when we're afraid of what's going to happen, we're afraid about situations, it distorts our thinking. And we need something true that's going to give us an anchor. We need people around us that are going to walk with us. Anger exaggerates. Fear distorts and anger exaggerates. It blows things out of proportion. It makes us see things that aren't really there. Our mind, you guys know this. We've all experienced this. And someone has to give us a reality check, right? And we need a reality check with God's truth. And we need a reality check by having people in our lives. You have to be in relationship with other people. You have to be in a, in a community. You have to be with people of faith that are saying, hey, let's talk about walking through life together, that when you make one of these statements, they come alongside and say, is there more to that? Tell me what's underneath of that. Why is that so hard for you? And they're willing to walk through life with you. And Micah had none of these in this story. He didn't engage in truth trying to figure it out all on his own and there's no community around him and the truth is if you don't have these things in your life you're going to drift and you're going to come to conclusions about God you're going to come to conclusions about faith they're going to shrink God down to your size and when you need a God bigger than your problem he's going to be nowhere in sight the truth is, I want a God who can rescue me. I want a God who can save me. I want a God who can deliver me. That's the God that I want to worship and that I want to follow. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads as we wrap up this morning. And I just want you to sit with this statement. Am I making a God like me? Am I making a God too small for me? How have I come to believe things that are not quite exactly what God says. And if God doesn't bring anything to mind, can you just tell God how much you need of God?
bigger than you this morning? Can you tell them what's going on in your life? The struggles, the wrestlings. Either internal in you or all around you. And just say, God, I need a God bigger than me. That's what I need. Father, this story about this guy creating his own God, worship, all these things, it's, it's a bit odd. There's just no easy way to put it. Not as bizarre as the last few weeks, just odd. But this was what life was like in the land of Israel. They just kind of created their own way of living life, and God is not even mentioned other than to bless what they have come up with. And God, I pray that in our lives and in our faith and in our journey, no matter where we are, that we would not be coming up with something that we believe to be of God and then asking Him to do good things and to bless it. But we would be willing to humbly go to God and say, God, I need you. I'm willing to follow you. And I can't do this life without you. God, make that our prayer.